Well, we're going to be going today in chapters 10 and 11. It, it's kind of, chapter 11 especially, is probably one of the more, I don't want to necessarily say controversial, but there have been more imaginations as to what it means and what everything represents in there, maybe than any other chapter in the book of Revelation. And I want to just remind us of a few things. First of all, that Revelation is about the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I have to keep reminding myself of as I'm reading and studying Revelation because there's so much darkness. There's so much evil, and then the judgment of God is so severe that I have to remind myself, as you go through and read, look for the grace of God in the midst of all of it. His grace is always greater, even in the midst of judgment. As I shared a few weeks ago, you know, <clears throat> without judgment, without these kinds of things, there is no need for grace. So God is doing and revealing to us some powerful, powerful things. Um, in chapter 1, verse 19, the title of my message is The Little Book and the Two Witnesses. If you remember early, and we looked at the, the book, the scroll that had seven seals. And this scroll, if you recall, there was a concern of who is able to open the scroll. It was a closed scroll, seven seals. And there was no one found to open the scroll except Jesus, the Lamb of God. And then we went through as this, the seals were opened, one seal after another. The first four seals were what are sometimes referred to as the four horsemen, or the four horsemen even of the apocalypse. The four horsemen had different colors, white, and the first seal was, was peace when the, the Antichrist comes onto the scene. And, and he first is really just deceiving and lying. It's a false peace. It's a phony peace. It was followed quickly by the second horse that was red. The red horse came, and it was a horse of war. The third horse came, it was black. It was a, black, a horse of famine. And then the fourth horse was pale or pale greenish in color, and it was death. And those were the first four seals. And the fifth seal is opened. And when the fifth seal is opened, we read about the martyrs, the martyrs during the tribulation that they're under the cross or under the altar. And then in the sixth seal, the terror that reigned. And we need to remember, even though there's a chronology here, chronological order to all of this, we don't really have a clear understanding of how quickly each one of these things happen. For example, some people think that first horse, the horse of peace, the deception of the Antichrist, when he, when he made this covenant that he was supposedly going to be at peace for seven years, well, they, some people think that lasted three and a half years, right up to the middle, when all of the deception then was removed. But one of the things I want to remind you again this week is I'm not so focused on all the things and what the symbolism might be because there's so many different opinions, so much imagination involved in that. We'll look at some of those things, especially in chapter 11. But the thing that I want us to really focus on, we can get lost in what does this mean, what does that mean, and we forget what's really crystal clear, what God is telling us, what is going to happen. Whatever the symbols represent, we may or may not get it, but he's clear as can be on what is going to happen. And that's what I'm really focusing on through this whole teaching, the things that we know for certain, because there's more than enough there without letting our imaginations go wild. So I also think one of the best ways to interpret Revelation is wherever possible, take it literally. It's not always possible because there's a lot of symbolism. 
But unless we have a bias that we don't believe in the supernatural, if we take literally what we can take literally, it makes it a lot clearer to us. So in Revelation 1, chapter, verse 19, John got these instructions. He's having this vision on the island of Patmos, and in, in chapter 1, verse 19, he is told, Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, which was chapter 1. And then he says, And the things which are, which was chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And then he says, And those things which shall take place after this. And that's the rest of the book of Revelation. Chapter 4 to chapter 22 is all prophetic about what is happening. And we are not living in the tribulation yet, but we are living in a time that is much closer to the preparation for God's release of his judgment. And I believe we're seeing some of the symptoms of what's going to take place in Revelation just in the world today and in our culture today. Last week, if you remember the seven seals, and if you can imagine, there's seven seals. If we had a line of the seven seals, one, two, three, four, five, six, you get to the seventh seal, and uh, the seventh seal opens, and then it's the seven trumpets, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So out of the seventh seal comes the seventh trumpets, which we talked about last week, and then out of that seventh trumpet comes the seven bowls or vials of God's wrath. So everything was contained in the seven seals, but out of that seventh seal comes the seven trumpets and the seven vials of God's wrath. So just kind of try to picture that in your mind. And how is it happening on a timeline? We don't know for sure. But I do know all of this takes place, all of it takes place in seven years, and most of it takes place in the last three and a half years. So this judgment that we're seeing is very compressed. Last week we looked at the trumpet. We said the first trumpet, hail and fire mixed with blood, came from heaven a third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all the green grasses were destroyed. The second trumpet blew, and something like a great burning mountain came into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the sea life dies, and a third of the ships in the world are destroyed, setting up famine transportation issues. The third trumpet blew and a great star from heaven. The star was called Wormwood, which means bitter. And all the waters of the earth, the third of the waters of the earth were made bitter and it said many people died from this water. The fourth trumpet blew and was opened and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were darkened. So the third of the day and a third of the night were black. Some people even believe the day went from 24 hours to 16 hours. Whatever it was, it was something in the celestial bodies that would bring terror into the hearts of man because they would never understand what's taking place. And in the fourth, seal, or fourth trumpet, besides that, it ends with him saying, John sees in his vision an, an eagle. Some translations say angel. Whatever it was, it was flying in the sky and it was shouting with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe meaning the next three trumpets are going to be different and they're going to be worse than the four, first four trumpets. The first four trumpets dealt with the, the creation around us, the environment. The next three deal with mankind. It comes upon man. And the fifth trumpet opened, it was woe in Revelation chapter 9. It says a star ha had fallen 
And I don't know if I stressed this maybe enough last week, but that word had is a critical word there. A star had fallen. Not that he saw a star fall. It had fallen sometimes in the past. And that star is a person, and that person is Satan himself when he had fell and was cast out of heaven. And he opens, he's given the key to the abyss, and he opens the abyss and out comes this smoke, and out of the smoke comes all these locusts and they can torment mankind. And in this tormenting of them, he actually said, torment all mankind that does not have the seal of God. He told them, you can't destroy the trees, don't touch the grasses, all the things that locusts normally would do, but he says, torment mankind for, four, for five months. And it was called Abaddon or Apollyon, depending on the Greek or Hebrew. Both words mean the destroyer, Satan. And it was on mankind, on flesh. And then in the sixth trumpet, the second woe, it talked about four angels that had been stationed, if you would, or bound, if you would, at the great river Euphrates. And they're going to be released to do what God had destined them to do and determined them to do many, 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 many since the beginning of time before. And now the time had come for them to be released and carry out their mission. And their mission was to kill a third of mankind. So by this time in Revelation, in the tribulation, we saw back in the fourth four seal, 25% of the mankind was killed. Now a third of what was left is killed. So now in less than... Seven years for sure, maybe as tight as three, three and a half years. Half of the population of the earth has been killed in the judgments of God. And in the midst of that, we need to remember that he set aside those 144,000. And they had the mark of God, the name of God on their forehead. And no harm could come to them through the whole tribulation. And they are out evangelizing the world. And everybody that accepted Jesus Christ that during the tribulation, I want to make this clear because I've been asked by the, about this from a number of you. Do I believe people get saved during the tribulation? Yes. However, I do not believe that anybody who had a chance to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior before the tribulation and rejected it, anybody who had been clearly given the gospel message, it's too late. The ones that can get saved during the tribulation are those that have never heard the gospel. And our first thought might be, gee, that must be a few people in the jungles of Africa or somewhere. No, it's many, many, many of the Jews who have never heard the true gospel. And it's also many, many of the people in our communities that have never heard the true gospel. The true gospel is not spoken in many, many churches. The true gospel is simply this. There is only one mediator between man and God, and that is Jesus, the Son of God. There is no one else. And the only way, the only way to get saved is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He came and lived a sinless life. He took our sins and went to the cross, and he died in my place, and he was raised from the dead to confirm that his sacrifice was sufficient, no more sacrifices ever to be made for sin. And he says, I offer this to you. If you would receive this gift of salvation, born again, new creatures in Christ, a new nature, that's the only way, the only way. And you say, well, everybody knows that that goes to church. No, they don't. No, they don't. 
We start adding works and say, that does it. We're saved because we did this, that, or the other thing. No. The only way is to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If you've heard that message and you've heard it here many times, don't wait till the tribulation to get saved because it isn't going to happen. It's too late. And I believe all or almost all of the people that get saved in the tribulation, except for the 144,000, are probably going to be martyred during the tribulation. So it's a lot better to just get saved now and avoid the whole thing altogether. It would seem to make good sense. And I closed last week with the last two verses of chapter 9 where it said, the rest of mankind, those that didn't get killed, the rest of mankind did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their immorality, and theft. And I stress that that is the natural consequences of humanism. That is the natural consequences of a culture that rejects Christ. They will not repent of the lifestyle they're living. Life becomes meaningless, totally meaningless. The murders, sorceries, drugs. The word there is the word we get pharmacy from. All of these things will happen, and it's normal and it's natural. The immorality, the immorality of the world, but look at the immorality in our own country, and that includes all of the sexual immorality. All of these things, and it, and it says, they still don't repent. Half the population's been killed, supernatural acts, one after the other, and they still won't repent. A hardened heart. As we begin chapter 10, we're beginning another interlude. Remember we talked about an interlude or a parenthesis? So what it is like is it's like we're watching this movie, and I've shared this before, and we're watching this movie unfold, only it's a true story of what's going to happen in the future. And it's so intense. There's so much going on. It's like now John in his vision has what's called an interlude or we're going to take a little intermission, only you don't get to go get popcorn. You're going to get a kind of an overview of what's taken place. A little more detail so we understand the story better. And we see that begin in chapter 10 and it's going to go all the way through chapter 14. And this is one of the things that's so confusing when you read the book. You're like, where'd we go now? What's happening now? It's just if you could say and step back and say, now he's going to give a little bit of a bigger picture of some of the details that have been taking place during this entire time frame. So the interlude doesn't continue in chronological order. It's a step back to give us some information that'll make it a little clearer for us to understand. So if you have your Bibles, or you can look on the screen, I may or may not read everything that gets on the screen, but... Starting in chapter 10, the first couple verses. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. The rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, or a little scroll, which was open. And he placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which, have been, which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them down. Remember, until now, that he had been instructed to write everything down. 
But now he's told, don't write this down. And notice also this little book or a little scroll, it was already opened because it's part of the seven seals and the seventh seal has been opened. And when we look at this, and again, I'm not going to go through all the symbolism, but there's a lot of debate even with the strong angel. A lot of people think it's Jesus. I, I personally don't. I think it's a strong angel. It says another. The another word there in the Greek is one just like. So I believe it's another, another strong angel, maybe the same strong angel that we saw in chapter 5, but whoever it is isn't necessarily as important. We see symbolism, a rainbow around his head. What's that about? Who cares about a rainbow around its head? Some of this is symbolism. A rainbow, what does a rainbow even tell us today? A rainbow is a sign of God's covenant, his promise. At the time, specifically, it was, he's never going to destroy the earth again with a flood, the rainbow. It is a sign of his promise and faithfulness to his covenants and his promises in the word of God. So when we see that this rainbow, that he's, he's faithful. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. What he has promised will come to pass. So we see that right away. His face was like the sun, representing what? The glory of God. Whoever this angel is, and you can see why some think it's Jesus. But he comes, and he's, he's, he's just like this, the sun. There's a brightness of his glory. He's faithful to his covenant. The glory of God is all over him. And his feet are like pillars of fire, pillars demonstrating a foundation that's solid and cannot be shaken and cannot be moved. And we have the fire that, that oftentimes represents judgment. So we see this scene that John is seeing and whoever this being really is, whatever's going to happen is really going to happen. And it's going back and it's like a, a showing an over, overview of the whole video of what's been taking place. And the seven peals of thunder. Well, with one foot. One foot on the water, one foot on the land. Do you sometimes ask yourself if you read this, why? Who cares? I, I sometimes get so confused and I'm supposed to tell you what it means. To me, it just is a show. Whoever this is, it's a demonstration of his authority over the whole earth. He's standing on the water. He's standing on the land. His feet are like pillars of fire. He's glowing with the glory of God. He's got the rainbow of his faithfulness to his promises, and it's going to happen. Whatever he's going to say is going to happen. And the seven peals of thunder spoke. Now, I have no idea why John uses this kind of wording. But we do know that there is something that was heard. This loud voice as seven peals of thunder makes me think maybe whatever he said, there was like seven things that were said. I don't know. But John, being obedient to what he had been told at the very beginning, was ready to write, and they said, no, do not write this down. Which is interesting to me, and again, it reminds me of who God is. He is sovereign. He is giving us revelation but he's not telling us everything. He doesn't have to. He's God. One of those scriptures I tell you over and over is one of my favorites is Deuteronomy 29, 29. What's it say? The secret things of God are secret. We have to trust him. But he is giving us all this revelation, but there is something he's not showing and not telling John to write down. One of the reasons I don't think this angel is Jesus is what takes place when we look at verse 5. It goes on and says, And the angel when I, whom I saw, standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore 
by him. It's like makes an oath, just like we would do in court. Raise your right hand. Do you? Here, he raises his right hand and he swears by him who created the heavens and the earth, who lives forever and ever. This angel is swearing an oath to someone greater than him. That's why I don't think it's God the Son. I think it is a strong angel. And he's about to sound the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? What's going on here? What is the mystery of God? And this is where our imaginations can run wild. But as things are playing out here, as the end is being revealed, judgment's being revealed, one of the great mysteries of God, especially in the Old Testament saints, was, you know, how is he going to bring this all together? Remember the saints that were martyred under the altar saying, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to let evil, how long are you going to let Satan have his way? When is it going to be just? When are you going to penalize, punish them for all that they've done? And I believe what we're seeing is that mystery of God being revealed in the book of Revelation. His plan, how long? How is your kingdom going to come? He's showing us that his kingdom is going to come and he's going through this whole process as we look through the book of Revelation. He's completing his purpose. And notice the oath that he makes in verse 6, the last few words. There shall be delay no longer. This angel is saying, it's going to happen now. And it's going to happen suddenly, quickly. It's all of a sudden going to take place. And if you remember, this is an overview. If you believe, like I believe, that in chapter 4, verses 1, was when the rapture of the church took place, it came suddenly. Be ready. It's going to happen. When this starts, when the seven years of tribulation starts, nothing's going to be able to stop it. It's going to happen. Verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go and take the book, the little book, the little scroll, which open in the hand of one who stands on the sea and the land. And I went to the angel, telling him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hands and I ate it. And when it hit my mouth, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. The little book. Take it and eat it. Take it in. Get it in you. Because what are you going to do? You're going to prophesy. You need the word of the Bible. You need the word of the scroll. You need the word of the little book and you need it in you. And it appears like it's going to be about the judgments of God that are still coming. And you are going to be prophesying for me so it has to be in you and take and eat it. And as it's revealed to you, as you begin to get it, you begin to understand it, first you're going to say, boy, this tastes good. It's sweet as honey. Why? Because judgment's finally coming. God's martyrs are finally going to have their day. Judgment of the world, judgment of the devil, judgment of the enemy, it's finally here and it tastes as sweet as honey. But then, it becomes bitter. Why? 
Because after we've eaten it and we rejoice in what's coming, then we realize and remember how horrible this judgment is and how many people are going to suffer this judgment who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if it doesn't turn our stomach bitter with that revelation, there's something wrong with us. If we have the heart of God, we cannot help but have compassion for the lost. So as he reads this book, it tastes good because finally it's like, it's, it's human instinct. It's about time, God. We've been waiting for this. We've been kicked around long enough. We've been persecuted long enough. They've cut our heads off. They've martyred us in every way you can imagine. It's about time they get theirs. And they may be our family members. They may be our neighbors. We don't know who they may be. And it turns bitter in our stomach. Eat the book. Prophesy. And then it changes the scene a little bit as we go into chapter 11. It's going to be focused on two things. Very briefly, the temple. And then these two witnesses. And there has been more speculation on who these two witnesses are maybe than anything else in the book of Revelation. So I'm going to tell you exactly who they are. (laughs) Amen. So when John starts talking about this, we need to realize that he's talking about, he's going to tell us about two guys, two witnesses, that they are going to be prophesying for 1,260 days of the tribulation period. 1,260 days is three and a half years. So these two guys are going to be prophesying for three and a half years of this, seven years of God's wrath being poured out. And we don't know exactly. I personally believe it's the last three and a half years. Some think they started at the very beginning and their end comes in the middle. I I just don't see that working with the way the story is played out. I could be convinced it maybe started just a little bit before the three and a half years and carried into it, but whenever it was, these guys are going to prophesy. Now remember when we read about them. Whenever this is going, let's say it started tomorrow. Let's Let's say these two guys showed up in Jerusalem tomorrow, which it can't happen tomorrow because there's no temple. But if it could, can you imagine it describes these two guys a little bit. And one of the things says they're dressed in sackcloth. Remember the Old Testament sackcloth? Can you imagine two guys showing up down here at Balaton, standing on the street, preaching and prophesying, and they're dressed in sackcloth? We'd think they're absolute lunatics. And they probably would be. These guys, this is what they're doing. And you've got to remember, think about what technology is today. And however long God waits for this to happen, where's the technology going to be then? Talk about events. I mean, Fox News and CNN, if they still exist, they're going to have 24-7 coverage of this mess. The whole world's going to get to see what's taking place with these two nuts, these two crackpots. And when you read about them, you're like, and really the world doesn't get it? So let's look at it a little bit, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11. And there was given me a measuring rod, Measuring rod in that time was a reed, a specific reed, and it usually was 10 feet long. Some people make significance of the fact that it's greater than a man's height. A measuring stick, measuring rod, like a staff, and someone said, 
So he's in this vision, someone's saying to him, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it and leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months, 1260 days or three and one half years. The temple. One of the things that those that study prophecy are waiting for is signs of the temple to be built. The Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And since then, there has not been a Jewish temple like this in Jerusalem, the temple of God. The temple would have been a place where there's the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant and a few other things were. Then there was called the holy place that the priest could go into. And then on the outside was an outer court where people could come and bring their animals and be sacrificed. And he's telling him, I want you to measure. I want you to measure with this reed. And here's what I want you to measure. I want you to measure the temple. I want you to measure the altar. And then he says something weird. What? I want you to measure the worship. I want you to measure these things. I don't think the word measure here, can measure can have at least three different meanings. You can be measuring length, you can be measuring time, or you can be measuring quality. And I believe clearly what is being measured here is the quality of what is taking place in the temple of God at this time. He wants to measure the quality. God always is looking at the quality of our worship. Always. He's not concerned with how good a voice we have. He's not concerned whether you raise your hands or clap or dance. He's concerned about your heart. When we were worshiping by, with the music and the song, the only worship that meant anything to God was the worship that came from our hearts. He's measuring it always. And I believe he's telling John that very thing. Because we sometimes think in, the, in this book of Revelation, it's just crazy that the, the, the Antichrist finally says, worship me, I am God, and people do. And we read about the temple and we think, oh good, the temple's going to be there. The worship in that te temple is just as abhorrent to God as the worship of the Antichrist. They're going to start sacrificing animals again for the removal of sin. They're, they're not acknowledging Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. This temple worship that's going to take place does not honor God in the least. So he says, measure. Check out its quality. Doesn't pass the test of God. It doesn't mean anything. The real difference is those on the outer court, the one he refers that he's given to the nation, that's the people that are going to worship the beast. They are not going to be redeemed. That worship. God will redeem the worship of the Jews who accept Jesus as the Lord and Savior. But both of them are abhorrent to him. And then we get to the two witnesses. And I know I'm going kind of fast, but I'm going to go faster. The two witnesses. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. Notice who they are. They're just not any two witnesses. They are his two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And if you can just imagine this scene as you're sitting in your home and you're watching CNN or Fox News or whatever you watch and you're seeing this live as it's taking place. They're, these two are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And anyone who desires to harm them, in this manner they will be killed. 
That ought to get the ratings up. They have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of the prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with every, t- every plague as often as they desire. As you begin to read this, two witnesses. Notice they are God's witnesses. And a witness is who you are. It's not what you do. We are called to all be witnesses, but we're to share our testimony of Christ. They are testifying. They use the word prophesying, proclaiming the truth. For three and a half years, these two characters are going to stand near the temple of God. You know, when we go back, go back to that picture of the temple again, would you? Or the, the Dome of the Rock? This is the problem. Right now where the Temple Mount is, that Muslim Dome of the Rock, and it's a 37-acre area, by the way, and the mosque, that's a shrine. There's another mosque in there behind it. And that is the spot that they believe the original temple was built, and that's the spot they therefore believe that the new one's going to be built. Can you see the problem? This is considered the second or third most holy site to the Islamic religion, and it has to be gone, according to many people, or it is 37 acres. Some people believe there's going to be a new temple built right next door. To the don't, I don't know. But all I do know is the Jews don't get to go near there. And if they do, there's problems. And the Wailing Wall is right outside the area of that 37 acres. You can see where all the Jewish people are with the Wailing Wall. So this all is in there and something has to happen before this all can take place. And this temple will be built. And this temple will be built, and there's people believing and preparing for it already. There are Jewish organizations already that are making all of the instruments necessary for sacrificial worship. They're already making the instruments. They're making all the furniture that's needed for the temple. And they've got a number of young Jewish priests that they're training how to do the temple sacrifices according to the word of God. It's all, they believe it's going to happen. They don't understand what part of prophecy they're fulfilling. They believe it's coming. And if we see that taking place, I might have to re- re- redo some of my theology. But I'm hoping that I'm gone before that temple gets built. A lot of people think it will be when that first horse, when the Antichrist comes and it's a false peace, 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 peace. Let's make a, a covenant between Israel and us and we all can get along and can we all be happy? Let's just get together, all of us in the Middle East right now, all the Muslim countries and, and Israel, and we're going to make a peace. There's this guy, he's amazing. He, he's, he gets the contract signed, he gets the deal done. And for three and a half years, there's peace and they build a temple. And then all hell breaks loose when the Antichrist gets nuts. When it happens, I don't know, but it's going to happen. The two witnesses in sackcloth. The sackcloth picture of mourning and repentance. For three and a half years, they're going to do this. And if that's not enough, at the end of three and a half years, something happens. It's like they'd been trying to kill him. They'd been trying and trying and trying to kill him, and they couldn't. Because God's plan was not completed yet. He had given them power. If somebody came and wanted to kill him, whether they used a gun or howitzer or whatever they wanted to use... They died with fire that came from their mouth. They could punish with plagues, turn water to blood for three and a half years. And then when it's time, when that angel says, it's going to happen now, whoever comes, 
the Antichrist probably called in Satan himself and the armies of who knows what, and the next thing you know, they're dead. One day, for three and a half years, nobody could touch them, and the next day, they're dead, and they're laying on the ground. And for three days, they leave them lay on the ground. How many of you know it's warm over in that part of the world? Three days. They're dead. And what are they doing? What is the world doing? Read the story. What are they doing? The world is celebrating and going crazy. They have a demonic Christmas. It says they celebrate, they rejoice, they party, and it gets so crazy they're giving gifts to one another. Why? Because the, three nutcase, the two nutcases are dead. All of evil is rejoicing. It looks like evil won. The Antichrist, he is the only one worthy of worshiping. Look at these guys. They're dead. They've been saying for three and a half years that we need to repent, that there is a God in heaven. No, the God is right here. He is the Antichrist. And they're rejoicing. Worldwide. TV screens are on. It's all taking place. And then all of a sudden... There's a loud voice, and they stand up, alive. I bet even CNN wonders what's going on about that time. They stand up, and there's a loud voice that says, Come up here! And they ascend in a cloud out of sight. And then an interesting thing takes place according to what the Word says. The people acknowledged that there was a God in heaven. It actually says in my translation, and that people gave glory to God in heaven. Does that mean they all repented? All got saved? No. You know, you can acknowledge there's a God in heaven and not be saved. I believe there were probably some that got saved at the very last second because of this. But I believe most of them acknowledge, wow, what in the world? fear and terror and they acknowledge there's a God in heaven but you know what if I want to eat tomorrow I got to have the mark of the beast they're still in charge my lifestyle is not going to change their hearts were so hardened by sin that even after all of this they still reject Christ there's a lot of details that I would love to go into but for time I'm not But the question should be this obvious to all of us. If we believe this is true, and if this is going to happen, what should our reaction be? Well, first and foremost, two come to mind. The first one is simply this. You need to know that you are saved. You need to make sure that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You need to know that it's not by works of any kind. It's not by religious attitude. It's not by church attendance. It's not by helping little ladies cross the street. It's not by baptism. It's not by confirmation. It's not by any of those things. It's by accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Period. That's it. There is no way to the Father except through me, said Jesus. No way. That's number one. And number two is this. It should stir in us a passion to share the gospel, to share the gospel, to evangelize, to share your testimony. It doesn't mean we have to go stand on a street corner like these two guys did. We need to share a testimony. We all are called to be witnesses. Yes, that's who we are. We're witnesses of Christ, but we need to share the testimony. 
your own testimony, your own story. If, you, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a miracle. Tell people about the miracle. Most of the time, if it's really taken root in us, they already know something happened. They just don't know what it was. And when you tell them what it was, they're probably going to laugh at you anyway or accuse you of something. But that's what we're... We should be so motivated. People that don't know Jesus, if they're still alive when the rapture comes, this is what they're going through. And if they're not alive when the rapture comes and they never accepted Jesus, hell is their future. Know you're saved and share the good news with others. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this revelation that you have given us. And in many ways, it should cause us to fear and tremble. But Lord, I'm reminded there's always a remnant. You have the 144,000 that nothing can touch because they're protected by you. These two witnesses we read about for three and a half years, nobody could touch them until their job was done. Father, we know that your grace abounds even in the midst of evil. Lord, I pray for you to give grace to each one of us here that maybe have never accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We've heard the message. We've felt that wooing in our heart, and yet we've ignored it. God, I pray you would give grace to receive the gift. And I pray also that you would stir in us a desire to share the good news at every opportunity. Let, our lives, our white, let, our, let us live our lives in such a way that it brings glory to you. And it causes those that don't know you to ask, what is it that makes you different? Pray that you would give us an anointing by your Holy Spirit that when we speak the words of truth, they are received and find favor. Father, that we can be part of advancing the kingdom and rescuing those who truly are perishing. I pray now this morning, God, as we go our separate way, we go back to the family and Memorial Day weekend and the things that it involves. Lord, I pray you would be with families who have lost loved ones through war. Even in peacetime, many of them are in places where lives are at risk. I pray you would watch over all of us as we go our separate ways. Keep us safe. I pray you would give us those divine appointments that we might be able to share the good news of Jesus. We ask all this in his name. Amen.